Today, um, October 24, 2009, I have the great privilege to be able to talk with Pastor and Christian Fellowship Ministries leader Wayne. What does the middle initial O stand for? Othello. And were you named after anybody? Othell, O-T-H-E-L-L. And I've never heard of anybody but about three that were named Wayman. It's not a very no popular name. Where it came from. No idea. Okay. You recently had a birthday. Right. How old are you? 80 years old. And of those years, how many have you been pastoring? Since 1960. Um, what advice do you give your startup pastors about the ministry and going the long haul as you have? Well, it, uh, it's, it's, it is the long haul. And that they will not be, uh, if they're looking to make money, it'll be a long time before they generally will be able to make a decent living. Um, let's back up a few years and go back to Arkansas, your birthplace. In what part of the state were you born? Northern, north central part, very close to the Missouri border, Mitchell, Arkansas. Mitchell, Arkansas. Does the name have anything to do with the fact that you, the Mitchells, were from there? Yes, there are a number of uh, family members that are around there, and uh, all of them are small farms, which in those days was nothing more than just bare, bare subsistence. Did you own those farms, or were they someone else's that you shared? No, I I don't think they uh, uh, I don't think they owned them. Mm -hmm. I'd say it was uh, uh, rental properties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were your parents' names? Uh, my father's name was George Stephen Mitchell, and my mother's name was Ida Sylvester Carrico. What was it that your dad did for a living? Well, my uh, father, while we were there uh, farming, and everyone in that area farmed, he. Uh, bought an automobile, which is one of the first ones in the entire country there, and bid on and obtained a mail route. They carried the mail. What year would that have been? That would have been probably 1931, somewhere in that area, 3031. That mail route was one in Arkansas. Yes, and then uh, it seems to me that uh, because we lived for a small amount of time in Missouri, uh, just above the border. And so uh, I think that might have been connected with that. I'm not sure of all the details mm -hmm. of that. You've got several siblings, and you were the fifth child born to your parents, the baby, that's right? That's correct, yeah. Tell me about the other children in your family. How many are boys and how many are girls? And uh, them. Two older brothers uh, and two uh, older sisters. And then uh, my parents were divorced, of course, when I was five years old, uh, six years old, maybe. And, um, and then my mother remarried, and I have a half-brother and half-sister. Uh, so old. seven children total. Yeah, seven, right. What is the difference in age between you and your oldest brother, George? My oldest brother is 10 years older, exactly, just about, than I am. And were you close to any of your siblings growing up? Not really, no, with the... With a divided family, my mother uh, lived in Phoenix. My dad lived in Prescott uh, much of my life. And uh, the family uh, pretty much was uh, going different directions. I lived with my father after uh, the, the girls married early. And, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the boys uh, uh, were in the military, World War II, took oh, uh, uh -huh. away from the family. And, and so I was with my father when he passed away uh, in Prescott. You've described your father as a drinker and a gambler. Yes, uh, however, he, he lived a stable life as far as uh, working because when we we came to Arizona, why he shortly after he came, uh, uh, he bid on mail routes, which were in those days called star 
route or rural routes today. And uh, at one time had a mail route from Prescott to Clemensaw, which he drove uh, twice a day and once on Sunday over and back. And then uh, he also had a mail route from Prescott to Bumblebee and a, and a route from Bumblebee, to, I mean, from Phoenix to Bumblebee. He owned all three of those and then employed people to uh-huh. do that. My mother actually uh, carried the one from Phoenix to Bumblebee. You mentioned recently in a sermon that you saw your grandfather reading the Bible. Do you think he was born again? Yeah, I believe he was. He was actually, uh, my mother says he was a lay preacher for the uh, Methodist Church, early Methodist Church. And yeah. so this was your mother's father? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what was his name? Josephus Carico. At what age were you when you saw him reading the Bible? And did he say anything to you about it? And what? how did his words affect you? No, uh, I would have been probably just uh, maybe 16 and a half. Is after my father died, I went to Phoenix to live with my mother. And he was out visiting, and he was quite elderly. I, I would say in the 60s, that'd be my guess. And uh, uh, he came out to stay with my mother for a while, and mm-hmm. my stepfather, and I was living with them. And so uh, I lived in the back in a, in a small house that was uh, built for me and my older brother, who had gotten out of the military at that time. Uh, he would read the Bible in the yard in, in the summer, in the uh, sunlight. Uh, which it must have been spring or fall because it was uh, wasn't real hot. Uh, never he never talked to me about it. I never knew. I have a vague memory of my mother and father uh, in a church service while we were still in Arkansas. So I could not have been over four years old or so. And they had uh, they had some exposure to church, but but no no knowledge as far as I know. Never any Christian experience. In the early days of the Depression, farmers in the Dust Bowl began to leave the area to find a way to feed their families, and your dad got that contract. Was that part of why he left? Yes, no doubt. Because during the Depression, very, very sparse uh, income, very hard times, and there was some kind of program, I don't remember exactly the details, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, required them to kill a certain amount of their their stock. And uh, it ha- that had to do with some federal program. It made it a real hardship on people. How long was the trip, and how did your family travel here? I have no idea how long it was. I know it was a long, long ways. And so... You were a small child at yes, the time. Yes, yes. So you probably asked, I would are we there yet? Years, <laughs> I been five years old when we traveled. And so we came over the Verde Valley and over Mingus Mountain. At that time, it was not paved. It was mm-hmm. dirt road. Mm-hmm. That was pretty treacherous. Yeah. What was Prescott like then? Prescott, very small town. Quite a number of people who had come out and immigrated from uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma. There's a mass migration of people who lived in Forbing Park. That's where all the Okies and Arkies landed. Very austere housing, just very shacks, excellent. Did you help your dad with his delivery route? No, I went with him. So in the younger years, I was the only one that was home. And uh, I've been to... Uh, Jerome Clemenceau many times as far as helping. Uh, I wasn't large enough to help, uh, nothing to do to help. And then Was uh, it still a dirt road when he no, had the route? No, they paved it. And then uh, I've been many times with uh, from Prescott to Bumblebee and Bumblebee to Phoenix on that old dirt road. Very, very primitive. And then you attended grammar school here in Prescott at Lincoln? 
I started with Miller Valley. Miller Valley. Miller Valley. At that time, you were just at the drop-off point of being in the Tuleys. I mean, there where the Miller Valley School is. Okay. The road forked. One went uh, over to Willow Creek. One went on out uh, toward Iron Springs. Those were dirt okay. roads. And that uh, was a dirt road. It's still there. That makes sense. Because you there. live right there off Iron Springs. Yes. Uh, we lived on Roost Street when Roost Street was a dirt road. Uh, old house. That house is not there uh, anymore. And then uh, I went to Lincoln School then, probably third to sixth grade, I'd say probably. Was that because the family moved? Yeah, we moved over in a different house. And that was um, about that time the kids, you remember kids calling you an Arky or an Oki? Oh, yeah. Was that a derogatory term? Well, yeah, we were were very poor and, uh, uh, you know, uh, patch clothes and all that. Um, When your mother left the home, she, she ran off. With another yes, man, Greg, right. Greg told me. Mm-hmm. Did your parents divorce at that time then? Uh, right at that time. I'm not sure of the exact timing. That's correct. And you were how old when that happened? I would have probably been uh, six years old at the most because we came out in 33. It was soon thereafter. So who took care of you after that? Well, we had uh, older sisters that lived in the house okay. at that time. Mm-hmm. And so my memory was that they did some of the cooking, and uh, my older sister probably principally. What was what's her name? Vera. Is she still living? Yeah, yeah. Well, my where does, sister's still living. Really? Where Where do they live? Where they all live in Phoenix. My two brothers, two sisters, uh, and uh, half brother and half sister all live in Phoenix. Did your mom stay in Prescott then? She stayed for a good while. Uh, she worked as a housekeeper for uh, two school teachers. Uh, then at another time, she lived in Octave. Octave is down on the south summit of the Bradshaws toward w- uh, Wickenburg. Oh. And, and there was a mine operative there, and uh, she lived for a while in school teachers down there as a housekeeper, took care of their children. And then after that, um, did you move again? Or did you stay no, over my, there? My father has stayed in Prescott all his life, and he passed away at age 46. And right. so you were living over off of Park at this time? Yeah, when he passed away, we were living on Park Avenue, old house. That house is not there anymore. Either. That house is gone? Yeah. yeah there's a stone uh, house there now, and the garage is right on the street, and it was then. Uh-huh. There's an old wooden house uh, back off the street, and the garage was right off where he drive right in the street. It's still there, but it's a stone garage now. What kind of student were you? Not very good. Being with from a broken home is uh, yeah. uh, not much discipline or oversight at all. I just kind of grew up. But I was always uh, a bright young man, and I could listen with half an ear and still get by. You know? Right. When your father passed away, what, what happened? What was the circumstances around that? He had heart trouble, which I wasn't aware of, and actually none of the family really were aware of, but apparently had had uh, some heart attacks on the road driving, but uh, this is we found out later. But uh, he passed away in the middle of the night, and I woke up. Apparently he must have made sounds, and I found him in the bathroom on the floor dying at age 16. Very terrifying. Wow. And no telephone. I had to go to a neighbor's uh, probably about 3 o'clock in the morning. They called the police and so on. How did this tragedy affect your life? Yeah, pretty pretty dramatic. Uh, not having not having a solid home uh, or family surrounding. And uh, and then I uh, moved to, of course, to live with my mother and stepfather in Phoenix. And so it's almost like being an intruder, you know. Yes, because now they had other children. Oh, yeah. They had two, two other children. 
your mother was married at this time to her second husband. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, third husband. Or her third husband. Yeah. yeah. And his, you, he was called Passy. Yes. Is that yes. correct? Roy Passy. Uh-huh. Oh, Passy was his last name. P-A-S-S-E-Y. It's uh, quite a large uh, Mormon family roots in the Mesa area. I see. Where in Phoenix was your mom's house? First was on uh, West Taylor, about 30, 35 West Taylor, which at that time was a fairly new subdivision. You'd call it, uh, wasn't actually a subdivision, but it was a new area. This side of Arizona Park, and so they had a fairly new house there. And so then they built you and your brother space in the back. It's almost like a shed. It's it's one one room, and my Mm -hmm. older brother then had gotten out of the military. And uh, he and I slept there in uh, that back. Did you get along with these new siblings of yours? Yes, I guess somewhat, yeah. No. And um, they're still alive and they're in oh, Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. And what are their names? Freddie Joe uh, Burke, and uh, that's her, his uh, sister, half sister. And uh, we have a family reunion generally once a year. Oh. And most of the time they come. Nice. And so that was your junior year in high school. What school were you enrolled? Phoenix uh, Union High School. I went there and uh, failed in two classes, had to go to summer school, make that up. And uh, then because of no roots, very rootless, I, through friends and acquaintances in Prescott, I came to Prescott and worked as a bellboy at the head hotel because the owner I knew... Her daughter, uh, was in the same class with her, her name was Billy Stroop, which is Billy Welch, was a teacher here for years. So I, I worked as a bellboy at the head hotel and lived there and finished off my senior year because they had a study work uh, program. I can't remember what they called it. And so um, you survived by, by working as a bellboy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell about your years in high school. Did you have friends? And did you play any sports? No sports, no. What did you do for fun? You know, the Lincoln problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in those years, uh, Presque is very, very small, very uh, simple town. And high school uh, was quite a uh, subdued experience. I had a few friends, but I was not ever in the uh, in crowd, uh, not in the sports at all. There was an in crowd then, too. Huh? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so kind of uh, on the fringe, I uh, however... Managed to buy a Model A Ford and s- stripped it down. Oh, cut the back on a race car? Stripped down, just cars. <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, so I was one of the only kids that had cars in the whole thing. It was quite an interesting thing. Did you have to get a driver's license then? Yeah, yeah, you had a driver's license, but it was very loose. I was telling somebody the other day that I was driving and got stopped by the police just around the corner where the old Fernora Market is. I don't know if you know, be where Copper Basin Road turns off. I was going out that way, got stopped by the police, and uh, and no no license on the car, no title. You know, they put you in prison today. <laughs> but the policeman just kind of laughed and said, "Go on, you know." When you when you would bring your shotgun to school. Yeah. And store it in your locker. And 22s, yeah. Was that? That's junior high school, where it's up where the courthouse is now. Okay, the, the uh, Washington? From across from Washington School there. Okay. The old, the, old, the courthouse building was, was the old uh, boys club, they called it, when I came here in 70. And uh, that was a junior high school then. It was the old high school, but they built the new high school. But I went to the junior high school then, and we would take our guns 
to school, I had friends we'd walk out Government Canyon, uh-huh. uh, you know, where the Veterans Cemetery right. is. Up that canyon, there's nobody lived in there, and go hunting up on those hills. Yeah. It just totally boggles different. my mind that you totally take age. your gun to school. <laughs> and we would even hitchhike. We'd hitchhike. Uh, with your guns and uh, With the guns ammo. out to, and go hunting out around Granite Dells and all. And then What did you hunt, typically, besides rabbit? Well, that was a little bit later, but in those days, uh, junior high is just uh, yeah, hunting for rabbits and quail, you know. But uh-huh. uh, uh, then later, I hunted deer. Uh, my dad carrying the mail, uh, he would drop me off in uh, in uh, Coyote Wash. It was a very good little place to, nobody lived out there, uh-huh. and up in those little hills. Uh-huh. And so I would, uh, he'd drop me off in the morning, and I'd be spent all day and then catch him in the afternoon. The second run when he came back, wow. and I'd have friends with me sometimes. Right. One, two. Then uh, a little older, I was fourteen. Uh, he dropped us off in uh, Mingus Mountain because you could hunt deer there mm-hmm. without a permit. All you need is a hunting license. I killed my first deer up one of those canyons uh, with a friend of mine. What kind of gun did you use? Uh, I had a thirty thirty then, thirty thirty Winchester, and shot the first deer, little three point. And we wrestled him over the hill because we're just kid, fourteen yeah. years old. Big. Wrestled him over the hill and drug him all down the hill to the road because we couldn't carry him; we're too little. And uh, by the time we got there, you know, the hair was mostly worn off to one side. Right. <laughs> and waited for your dad to pull up. Yeah, we waited till he come <laughs> down and caught him and loaded him and, and took it home. In your book, An Open Door with Ron Simpkins, you said that you had become a two-bit hoodlum who never got caught. And you remember there were gamblers with loaded dice at the head hotel who would cheat people. Did those guys influence you? And did you start smoking and drinking at this time? Oh, I started smoking probably then, uh, early age, uh, probably before that. As a matter of fact, we used to smoke uh, grapevines. I don't know if you know, the the grapevines have vents in them. And uh, then cedar bark with oh, newspaper, wow. you know, just uh, yeah. typical what kids, kids. do. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, uh, petty theft and uh, and uh, road drunks and so on, nothing. I heard, I've heard some pretty wild stories about Prescott. Can you tell us some more about that? In what way? Like uh, about Whiskey Row and what the town was Well, like. the, the town was pretty wild. I remember they had prostitution uh, down where the Valley National Bank used to be. Oh, what is it bank right. now? There's Rex Arms. It's changed. Well, everybody knew that it was prostitution. Now it's legalized. It was legalized oh, yeah. at that time. Well, I don't know if it was legal, but it was allowed. Uh, my thought is probably that it was just uh, there's a payoff behind the scenes. And so then when I worked in the head hotel, they had a slot machine as you went around to oh, the really? restroom. So there was gambling, too. Gambling, too, yeah. And, and, uh, and I don't think that was legal either. After graduation, you joined the Air Force? Yeah, after graduation, I actually uh, uh, moved to Flagstaff and uh, worked uh, worked for a period of time in a, a Dodge dealership as a parts helper assistant uh, with a brother-in-law. Because I had a sister then who was married to a man who was a mechanic in Flagstaff. I got a job in that garage. Uh, then uh, somewhere later that year, 
I can't remember all the details, but I became unemployed. I, I think I went to Baghdad and wasn't able to get on at Baghdad because some of our, our guys that graduated worked at Baghdad and uh, was was good pay and solid solid employment, but it's isolated, see. Uh-huh. So I didn't get on there, and I remember I went to uh, Flagstaff back to where my sister uh, uh, lived, and uh, they had moved. <laughs> I know where. No communication. Oh, boy. And so uh, through a fluke, my brother-in-law walked in and I saw me. So anyhow, I was out without money, no employment, and uh, I joined the Air Force uh, simply to survive, actually. What was boot camp like in those days? Well, I don't think it would have been much different than any boot camp now. They just took green kids uh, from all walks of life and uh, put them in and then shaved all their hair off, threw clothes at them, and began to uh, teach them to march classes. Uh, just make someone that would submit to authority is actually what it was. And then from there, you went on to a training school. They gave you testing to see what your adapt- adaptability was. And they sent me to uh, Rantoul, Illinois. Um, I can't remember the name of the air base now. But it was a tech school to train uh, mechanics and uh, equipment repairmen. And I actually uh, was trained as a flight electrician by the Air Force. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did because it was challenging. It wasn't just piecework. You go out and, and you had to troubleshoot, think, read blueprints, and, uh, mm-hmm. and actually come up with a solution. Never realized at the time how much of an advantage that was through uh, other than just being a kitchen attendant or a military policeman or whatever. See? Right. Because it was it, problem uh, solving. It put skills in you. It's problem right. solving. Yeah. And then after that, where were you stationed? Being adventurous uh, and romantic, I uh, I put on my word I'd like to go was the South Pacific, and they sent me there. <laughs> <laughs> so. I said, so out of, <laughs> out of that, I went to Guam, the Marianas Islands, uh, which is, uh, had just barely come out of World War II. It was very, very primitive. And so um, while you were there, you fought in the Golden Gloves. Yeah. What was that? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. What yeah. was that? Uh, was that just to kill time? Yeah, nothing to do. Yeah. Absolutely isolated. There's absolutely yeah. nothing to do. We spent a lot of time in the gym, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and marching over the cliff to the sea and trying to find anything to do. And so I took up uh, boxing, fought in the Golden Gloves, uh, probably in 1950 there. But in the first fight, oh, I got headbutted and broke my nose. And that was it? That was it, yeah. <laughs> and I finished out the fight, but it took my nose swell. Yeah. And it was swell for a long time. So when you were discharged for the Air Force, where did you go next? Well, I was there, the Korean War broke out. And uh, so North Korea invaded South Korea, uh-huh. and overnight they mobilized everything on Guam. They, there was a B-29 bomb squadron, a 19th uh, bomb wing, and uh, I don't remember how many B-29s we had, but they had no bomb racks in them. And so day and night we're putting bomb racks in, we're pulling uh, ordnance out of the jungle, and the whole squadron went to uh, Okinawa and Japan. And South Korea, there's a, and I was the only one left in the shop. Why, I had no idea. But they left me and a civilian employee were the only ones in that maintenance shop. That was quite interesting because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of responsibility, which wasn't my rank at all, because I think I was a private first class, probably, I'd probably mm-hmm. one strike. Then, the, and the uh, civilian employee was an old uh, drunk. He was an alcoholic. 
and so he was useless. <laughs> and so I had the whole responsibility of the maintenance department. Uh, we would have to work on the planes that came through that were shuttling over to Okinawa or Japan. And uh, then in the process of time, they sent in other young men from the U.S. that are in the military, just came in, and uh, a lot of them were not trained at all. They didn't know a thing. And so uh, I had the responsibility, took it, uh, took the responsibility, studied to better myself, and uh, be, uh, in the extended bar enlistment, I, we only went there for 14 months because uh, very isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very hard duty. They wouldn't leave you because the guys would go truffle. They froze our enlistment. I was in six months. Korean War broke out. They froze our enlistments and froze our tour duty. So you didn't know how long you're going to be there or how long you're going to be in. I was actually there 21 months. Wow. But as a result of taking responsibility, I got uh, promotions. And uh, when I came off there, I was staff sergeant. And so after that, where did you go? Then I came back to Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino, which was actually a deactivated base somewhat. They were, it was still open, but it wasn't very active. And uh, I was only there, I can't remember, it's a short few months, and uh, there's nothing to do there either. It was just mm-hmm. like uh, just been in time. And, but there were men who had been stationed there for a good while. And one of the men that was in the shop where I was got orders to, for Big Spring, Texas. And But he was married, had a family, and he did not want to go. And he asked me if I'd trade orders with him. I said, Big Spring, Texas? Mountain sure. fishing? Yeah. <laughs> and so I traded orders with him. And Big Spring, Texas was a... Uh, a training base for fighter pilots was the last stage. They flew piston aircraft, T-28, but it was the last stage before they graduated to Chets. And there was a seven-year drought had been going on there. They had not seen a drop of water in seven years. It was big spring by name only. Not much hunting to go. <laughs> Nothing but dust. Uh, wow. The dust storms would come in. They'd be like uh, 10, mm. 15 feet in the air. Oh totally like clouds mm-hmm. and uh, I've actually laid in the barracks and heard the wind kick uh, small pebbles against the side you could hear it. Yeah. Uh, it was terrible. Very bad, bad drought. And then uh, my enlistment was up September 29th 1953 I think. 52, 52, September 1952, yeah. And so you were done. You didn't yeah, want to stay just, in no. Texas. No, they offered me, uh, which is quite interesting, they offered to send me to the officer's uh, training school, candidate oh. school. I said, no way, I'm out of here. I'm mm-hmm. be my own man. Okay. <laughs> so do they pay for you to go home or after well, that? They give you a discharge. I, I have no idea if it's severance pay. I don't uh-huh. have any idea. Did severance. you end up that back in Phoenix then? Or? Yeah, I came to Phoenix, so that's uh-huh. where my mother was. Okay. So not having any other uh, roots or Place. anything when I came to Phoenix. Yeah. I went to work for the phone company, but it was uh, it was brain-dead work. It's, you work on a frame room, solder wires all day long, no challenge of any kind. And then I put in for uh, Luke Air Force Base and got on the Luke Air Force Base as a civilian employee. And worked on aircraft again. And so back home in Arizona, um, in your free time, you would go. You'd go out. Where did you go? Yeah, well, uh, wasn't there a place that a lot of people would go? Well, the uh, yeah, wherever I can't I can't remember all the things we did. But Riverside Ballroom (laughs) 
was a central spot for meeting girls and uh, uh -huh. and uh, I mean it was huge and uh, it was a kind of the central spot of people. People would come from all over the state. Yeah, all over Phoenix. And that was a country western dance. Yeah, bands play. You know. Okay, and you met Nelda Sue Henderson there. Yeah, I had actually known her uh, okay. briefly because I, uh, when I was in finishing high school, I would uh, often ride to uh, school with her brother who had a, wasn't a motorcycle, it was kind of like a motorcycle, what would you call it, a motorbike then. And he would take me to school quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And so knowing him, then Arizona Park was uh, an area that they built during World War II, housing, and quite a settlement of people came out there. It was quite a, it was quite a new uh, lower housing. Yeah, mm -hmm. because he had like almost like barracks for housing. Right. And, uh, and the center of activity there was a skating rink that they'd built. Very primitive. It's not much more than a cement slab, but a lot of teenagers went there. And so, uh, as uh, when I was in high school, I had met her, uh, my Nelda, uh, uh, and she was twelve years old wow. and pretty, uh, pretty tough little girl, mm -hmm. old Levi's and so on. Mm -hmm. But she was just a little girl then. So right. when I went to dancing Riverside Ballroom, lo and behold, there she is, and she's a beautiful young woman. Mm -hmm. Because you already knew her, you just walked up to her and started talking I can't to her. remember the exact detail, but somehow... Or did she come up to you? <laughs> no, I, I went up to her as a recognizer, probably. Mm -hmm. And she was with some of her friends that she still, once a year, they get together, go to Phoenix and all that. Blah. She just did this last week. And uh, some of the friends she was with, uh, two of the girls, Peggy Page and uh, Emily, Emily Page, both were there that night. Wow. And I, I, I think I probably danced with them. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Was it what kind of dancing? It was country no, it was music. This country, the western dance. You just, yeah. It's it's a foxtrot. You call. Oh, it. Yeah. okay. Yeah. How long did you court before six you weeks. popped the question? <laughs> before we got married, six weeks. Yeah. Six weeks before you got married. Yeah. When did you ask her to marry you? Uh, I don't have any idea. Right away. Pretty quick, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you asked her, did you have a ring? Uh, no. No, we bought rings. The two rings cost $32. $32. And I still have one on now. All the design is worn off. I have no idea where we bought them. Somewhere in the jewelry store. And we went to Wickenburg to get married. And uh, that was on February 7, 1953. Was it in a church there in Wickenburg? Oh, no. They had a, a marriage chapel there. That okay. You, you could go there and be uh -huh. married. And, and, and so, uh, and so uh, taxi, Who stood up with you? Uh, a taxi driver was one witness, and I think the uh, the marrying guy's wife was the other witness. That was in Cape Prescott for, for honeymoon. And so you were how old at that time? I would have been 23, probably. And, sis, and your wife was? She would have been 19. Yeah. She was 19. Barely 19. Wow. Yeah. And so you did go on a honeymoon? To Prescott, yeah. Of course. <laughs> Where did you stay? The AJ uh, If I remember correctly, there's a Mission Inn, which is, what is it today? It's still there. Uh, it was called the Mission Inn then. Mm -hmm. Did Mrs. Mitchell's parents approve of you? I would say they probably did, yeah. There was not... not uh, She's, you know, she's pretty independent herself too. Her father was an alcoholic oh, and uh -huh. spent very little time in the house. Uh, and her mother was 
old time, old school, solid homemaker. Right. But uh, and I, I, I met her, but she, she was probably happy to see your daughter. I would say so. To a cute guy. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. And where did to her... someone who had a job? So you were working at oh, yeah. at the Air Force Base. Yeah. Okay. And where did you? Where did her parents live? Uh, they lived on uh, thirty five, thirty five West Taylor. Um, oh. But on on this side, on the west side of thirty fifth Avenue. And then, so after you guys were married. How soon after that did Mrs. Mitchell become pregnant with your first child? Pretty quick, because our first child was born right about nine and a half, ten months around there. Yeah, pretty quick. Where did she give birth to her? Uh, Good Samaritan Hospital. Mm-hmm. Down in Phoenix, still there, yeah. right? Yeah. Were there any complications? No. And what did you name her? Terry, Teresa Susan. And everything was going fine, and then what happened? Well, she, uh, this little child caught uh, pneumonia and uh, uh, very quickly deteriorated. Uh, I don't know if it was sudden pneumonia or what it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, she began to have uh, seizures, like uh-huh. seizure. And we rushed her to uh, the county hospital, which, mm-hmm. and uh, she passed away soon thereafter, which was a tremendous trauma to yes. both of us, yeah. And so you were both obviously grief-stricken. Your mother had left you, you lost your father, and now your daughter passed away. What happened after that? Well, uh, I have a brother who was a Christian, who was my older brother, George. When did he become a Christian? Uh, Way, way back, like when he's 18 or so. Him and his uh, wife are both Christian men. I can't remember all the details of that, but I know that they were... But... He had. Uh, he was a member of the Foursquare Church in Phoenix, but uh, but by the time the child came along, I was not working. I was unemployed oh. and uh, uh, destitute, no money, nothing. And my older brother uh, came on the scene, and he just gave me a blank check and said, "Whatever the funeral costs are, you just fill it in there." And so uh, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. And so through the uh, openness to that. They got us to go to church, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when uh, we were saved in uh, Phoenix Foursquare Church. Yeah. And so after you and Mrs. Mitchell were born again, you attended church regularly? Pretty pretty, much. pretty regularly. I wouldn't say that it's uh, like full bore on. And mm-hmm. uh, as I spoke in a sermon uh, when I preached on hospitality, a lot of it had to do with uh, my uh, brother and his wife. Because we knew that if we went to church, they'd invite us out for lunch. Ah. And that was a real Right. Deal. And so... Uh, <laughs> that it, was a it, good attraction. Yeah, it was probably a year before it really got locked in, mm-hmm. I'd say. And and were you working then, after that? or? Yeah. Was I working? I was can't remember. Uh, I got back on at Luke. Uh, but it seemed to me I, I was a mechanic in a service station for a while. Mm-hmm. I did I did two three uh, different jobs, but I got back on at Luke Field uh, as a civilian employee also. Yeah. And so, in your early days as a Christian, when God would deal with you about issues in your life, because sin causes so many layers of hurt and bitterness yeah. in our lives, were you slow to release them at first, or did you immediately let God have all those burdens? Yeah, I think the real turning point for me was uh, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, probably uh, 10 months or so after I was saved. It seemed to be the real turning point. 
You've testified that for you, the bondage of cigarettes was like getting free from a heroin addiction. Right. How long were you saved before you got free from the cancer sticks? And how did God convey to you that you were a slave to them and that he wanted to set you free from them and alcohol? I would say uh, probably a year and a half uh, before I uh, really was wanted to be free from cigarettes. Yeah, I'd say that. And what else did God show you in those early days? Well, you're, you know, you're pretty uh, dim about the Christian life when you're a new convert. And uh, the thing probably that helped us the most, and of course it was a small church. I don't think the church ever did run over 130, 40 people, mm -hmm. if it ran that much. Uh, but uh, the thing that was really uh, touched us is that Foursquare missionaries would come to, to Phoenix to the Thunderbird Language School to learn Spanish to go to the mission field. Oh, uh-huh. And so there was a string of those families, I would say maybe five different families that came through there. And of course they had the missionary vision mm -hmm. and, uh, and the enthusiasm right. and they made a deep impression on me. And so them and, and that church, the pastors were missionary oriented. They would give exposure and so on. And so uh, that really did make an impression on me. And uh, during that, uh, that period of time that I felt that I wanted to be a uh, minister. And mm -hmm. so knowing nothing about the Christian life, mm -hmm. I mean, so I went to the uh, pastors and said, I want, uh, I think I'm going to be a, a pastor. So during this period of time, I'd go to the mission down Skid Row, uh -huh. and uh, they'd let you preach down there. Right. And uh, uh, street preached in Glendale, and that, and that time Glendale was a totally separate city. Right. We'd go into the Glendale Park and preach street preaching, preaching in the park uh, as an outreach. And so uh, there was no organized uh, activity at all. Uh -huh. like, like what we have today. Right. Excuse me. What we have today d didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so the, the, the motivation was there without any kind of direction. Okay. So when I told the pastors I wanted to preach, they said, uh, well, you know, you, you need to go to Bible school. But uh, knowing that uh, that they wanted to make an impression, they said, but you can take correspondence and we will teach a class, I think, once a week. So uh, from Life Bible College of uh, Los Angeles, California, I took uh, correspondence courses, but then they taught live once a week. And then they would have a missionary sometimes teach a class. And uh, uh, if, a, if a minister came in, like an uh, Van Cleave, who was a... A very good teacher. He'd teach a class. And so I did a, a nearly year correspondent course. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to go on to a Bible school and move to Los Angeles and started Life Bible College. So when you got filled with the Holy Ghost before you went away to Bible school, yeah. you also felt God impress upon you that he wanted to move and use you in the nations of the world and in the islands of the sea. Well, yeah, this is kind of an interesting thing because there's nothing... What you see today in our church is nothing like what we were in. But I answered an altar call one day. There's a group of people there in a little little church. And uh, some man came up and laid his hands on me. And uh, it was a dramatic experience. And I, wow. I, uh, I thought that somebody opened the side door because mm -hmm. I audibly heard uh, a wind, a rushing wind. Wow. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit dramatically and uh, they uh, I was still there 
uh, weeping and praying when uh, they uh, told my wife, said, when he's uh, finished, we close the doors, you go out. And so it was, you know, I, I, I don't detract from people who get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's wonderful. But it wasn't anything like you see here this week. And, uh, this was a, a dramatic experience. Yeah. During that time, I prophesied uh, about uh, uh, preaching to the nations of the world. And uh, while I was uh, filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit under that power. And inside, you knew that was a prophecy to you? No, I didn't. I really? had the slightest clue what that was all about. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no, and it was later that uh, that I just... You remembered uh, it. Oh, yeah. Well, I still remember it to this day. Mm-hmm. But I later uh, began to feel that I wanted to preach, you know. No, I didn't have the slightest clue. It was after... I'm involved that uh, I began to think back to uh, that period of time. Uh-huh. Sometime during this period, uh, I had a dream from the Lord, and I saw myself preaching in Ansys Temple. I mean, Next this is the Bible ph- College. Yeah, uh-huh. it's phenomenal. And so I'd never been there, never knew what it was, never never saw it. Uh, but I, but it was in 1978 I re- actually was preaching in Ansys Temple. Wow. Uh, in a morning seminar, that's phenomenal. So, wow. at any rate, the, 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 so that that's a kind of diverting. But uh, but uh, I can't remember the exact sequence. But it would have been probably 1956 when I, uh, or maybe 55 when I really said I want to I want to preach, and I started the correspondence course. Could have been 56 mm-hmm. because 57 is when I moved to California. Started. Okay. And so you had kids by this time. Oh yeah, we had uh, we had two children, Karen and Sharon. And then, um, then while you were at school, you had to work too. Oh right? yeah, yeah, no money. You, mm-hmm. right? So I uh, I worked at daytime in a job doing uh, uh, repair work on uh, coin meter washing machine. When I went there, I was working in the aircraft industry. I went to work for right. Lockheed Aircraft, mm-hmm. but uh, they finished off that program and laid me off. I got a job at. Uh, Douglas Santa Monica in the missile uh, system, but it was I, it was too far a drive. And I, uh, meanwhile, landed this job fixing uh, washers and dryers ten blocks from where we lived. Right. So I said, "No, I'm going to do that. I want to do this mm-hmm. because we can make a living at it." And uh, so I would work all day, take service calls all over Los Angeles and Los Angeles County, and go to school at night. So I'd go three hours at night. And, uh, How long did it take you to get through? Well, three years. Mm-hmm. And it was a devastating physical and mental uh, challenge. Yeah, I'd come in, uh, because you're driving all day. Right. I'd come in at night, and uh, for 30 minutes, I'd just lay on my back on the living room floor. And then she'd be fixing supper, have that uh-huh. ready. I'd get up, eat, and then go to Bible school. At the door again. And so by the time I finished with the stress of that, uh, also, I ran into in Bible school, uh, they were they had begun to teach eternal security. Oh. And I knew that wasn't correct. Now, isn't that a Pentecostal college? Oh, yeah, but, but they infiltrate, see. Oh, and they had people in charge and, and instructors that were into eternal security. The, the dean of the Bible college was, so he filled the slots with teachers. And mm-hmm. so that... I'm battling against that. I know that's not right, but I, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're that stress. So by the time I got out of Bible school, I was, uh, I was stressed out of my mind. And plus, they labeled you a rebel. Yeah, I couldn't hack that. 
And then, of course, my pastors in Phoenix, they knew that that was going on, too. So we would go back. If we had a long weekend, like had a holiday, Mm -hmm. we would drive home to Phoenix and be in our home church. Right. And uh, then then drive back and go back to work on And so, in spite of all that trouble, you got your degree. A license, yeah. License, is that what it is? Yeah. What is what what is the title of your license? Ministerial license. And so then you took a your very first position was as a youth pastor. Came back to Phoenix in the Foursquare Church and uh-huh. uh, and actually was supposed to be the youth pastor for your brother's church there. And yeah. You, you. And so what happened there? It's well, it was like a joke because mm-hmm. uh, the kids were they were they were living for God, and so that's a vexation. And so trying to do that, but I I was there. How long was I there? I can't remember how long I was there, but uh, uh, but I uh, I said usually I worked some. I didn't draw a full salary, but they just helped us some. And so I was there from June of uh, 1960 until 1961, probably early in the year. They offered me to the church in Wickenburg. So there was actually probably 17 people in the church and a building and a place to live. And so in Wickenburg, you and Sister Mitchell pastored. Who was the leader of the Foursquare denomination at the time? Ralph McPherson. Okay. Yeah. His his mother, Amy, had died by yeah. then or yeah. just retired? Yeah. No, she, no, she, she died. Was gone. Okay. Yeah, she died in 1944, I think. Did you ever get to meet Ralph? Yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been in the room and they were interrogating me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, so... (laughs) (laughs) That's later on. Yeah, that's down the road. So then, after the Wickenburg Church, you fought some battles there and won some? Yeah, so the... uh, You get out of Bible school and you're oriented to uh, Sunday school. Mm. So the idea is you get the children in and then the parents will follow them. Well, that's what folly is not true. And the cliche was, uh, and uh, a little child shall lead them. So, but that hadn't fully dawned yet there, mm-hmm. and so we, we did, uh, we haul people to church, uh, welfare people from everywhere we're, mm-hmm. and so we built it up. Uh, maybe we might have been running fifty people, and so I learned some things Which is about. It's pretty big for that town, isn't it? Pretty well, big church. Yeah, was, you know, but they weren't all adults, a oh. lot of kids. <laughs> so, uh, but I learned uh, some good lessons about money. Mm-hmm. I began to break through and begin to believe God for money. Uh, we, uh, we were working almost exclusively with old, older people. Right. Uh, the, the, the only younger people we had would have been the children of uh, one or two families, but it was a session where, and, and I wouldn't work full time. I'd drive to Phoenix and work one day a week and that would, uh, so we got a place to, to live, live on. and, uh, enough to, to keep the wolf from the door. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'd work two days. They would have, they would have employed me full time, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So mm-hmm. I want to put my time in. So I did a lot of studying, a lot of reading, right. and a lot of that. No musician. We didn't have any musician there. Uh-huh. We sang a cappella. And uh, then finally got a musician before we left. A pianist came in uh, from outside. But then, uh, you know, not much potential in Wickenburg. Uh, so it's 1,500 right. people then mm-hmm. in the summertime, 2,500 in the wintertime. Oh, wow. Because they come into the so dew trenches. Right. See. Uh-huh. Oh, really? And, and then the workers come in there, yeah. I see. It's a big dude ranch. People come in from back east, pay big money to, to oh, go out okay. and ride a horse and build a campfire. Oh, okay. and, you know, big Play money. cowboy. 
Yeah. So then after Wickenburg, you guys ended up in Eugene, Oregon. Is uh, that right? Well, no. We first went to uh, Courtney, Canada. Oh, okay. So I was Was wanted... that on Vancouver Island? Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to uh, go somewhere else. And so in the organization, you you apply and they tell you where there's openings and all. So they offered uh, me a church in Vancouver Island, Canada. And Beautiful. that was quite an adventure. Uh, so here we, we, we launch out. They took a love offering for us in the Phoenix Church before we left. I think it was two hundred dollars, and so uh, I mean now now we've got uh, to four kids uh-huh. and uh, a a business coupe Chevrolet would have been a fifty two probably. We load everything we have in a, in a little box trailer, and uh, <coughs> somewhere in California we had car trouble. Made it off the freeway, and luckily there was a garage right there, and it had a, a cracked head in the car, and so I think it was like one hundred and seventy-five dollars it took of that. So oh we goodness. we uh, make it into Canada. We uh, we're landed <coughs> immigrants, uh, they called us, and uh, rode the ferry to Vancouver Island and took a church there, where the pastor had run off with the Sunday school children or something, and so that was a broken down church. And they stuck you with these broken down churches. Well, that's that's all I got, yeah. So uh, we were there a year. So there we did child evangelism. That uh, oh, okay. My wife helped me. She, we did flannel graph out in these little uh, settlements out from oh, Courtney. And uh, it was still running <laughs> the Sunday school thing. We right. still on that. Broke the record. You would take the stories out to people? Yeah. I see. Oh, yeah. And, and you know what flannel graph is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was the latest technology then. Wow. <laughs> so we're a child evangelist. <clears throat> so, you know, good experience. We had the, you're trying to solidify and, and that. Then, then, but I became discouraged in not seeing uh, the thing really go. Right. Uh, she became pregnant again. She, she wasn't happy about that. And so uh, I came back to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, and so I started, but that time I'm 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 pretty disturbed about the four squares. Not mm-hmm. you know the whole thing is not gelling, and so I started attending a uh, an independent Pentecostal church on East McDowell Fellowship Tabernacle. Was okay. a pretty strong independent church then. And they were Pentecostal. They were Pentecostal, yeah. But even the the pastor was a scam artist. So uh, <laughs> I wasn't happy with that. I ran into another uh, man who was out of the ministry. And he and I began to talk, and so we we uh, rented an old ranch house on Scottsdale Road. Now you got to understand, Scottsdale then is not at all kind what of it a is. Now. Thing yeah, yeah. And so somebody bought the, that old house as a mm-hmm. speculation because they knew property was going to rise. Right. And so we uh, rented that and uh, knocked out some walls wow. and started an independent church, which is the People's Church of Scottsdale. Now, is that church still in existence? I think so, yeah. And so, uh, but uh, as I began to see him, he's a manipulator. Mm-hmm. I wasn't happy there, and mm-hmm. so then I made application. So you guys were co-pastors? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I don't see you as a, as <laughs> doing a, well with that. That was the beginning of the charismatic movement, right, at I that see. time. So we got a lot of spirit-filled people. So then I put in the application for a... Uh, church in the Northwest District, which we had been under a man when we were in Canada. And he offered us Emmett, uh, uh, Idaho. And so that was, had a building, had a house, lived to, uh-huh. to where there three years. 
There's like a farming community, mm-hmm. Boise Cascade Lumber oh, Mill. So it was prosperous and you had yeah. a good well, group. Not, not very good. Okay, and then Emmett, from Idaho. From Emmett, we went to Eugene, Oregon. And I remember you mentioning in Eugene is where you were confronted with a demonic manifestation in one of your people. Or was it just somebody in town there that called you? And no, it was Emmett, Idaho, where uh-huh. uh, we had... Uh, a woman that called us to a farmhouse up in Montour, which was close to Emmett, a uh, little, little settlement. And uh, the lady had two demon-possessed boys that had mm-hmm. gotten into stars. Uh, oh, uh, astrology. Astrology. Uh-huh. Yeah. And wow. so... Uh, that that was, was the door that they opened and the demons oh, were yeah, able to... Oh, yeah. They were both supposedly Christian boys and gotten into astrology. And... Uh, was not successful. I get, it's like the seven sons of Siva that threw me out. You didn't understand how to no, deal with it at that no, time. No. And so, and that was in Emmett. And then you guys ended up going to Eugene. Eugene, Oregon, yeah. And how was that? Well, and, and that was where we took the church, uh, practically no people, maybe three families. And uh, it was a run down building, hadn't had a pastor for three months, I think. And so, uh, but that was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, there we really began to get a visitation of young people. Oh. And, and our own girls were teenagers then. Okay. Uh, and uh, they, their friends were being brought in. And so, but we weren't there that long to really see. What, what God was really moving young people all over America. Mm-hmm. And uh, What year was that? 1969. And so... Uh, so from there, we went to Carson, California, took a uh, church in Carson, but there were 10, or no, seven women who all had a preaching credential from Slim Boatwright. And so I told my wife, from who? Slim Boatwright. He, he is from Prescott, actually. Uh, Hester Boatwright was in the church when we came here. So he, he was an evangelist. He had his own organization. But uh, I told my wife, I said, uh, we could build a church here but I'll have to clean everything out of this. It's just a mess because I no sooner got there, they told them they had credentials and they like to preach. So uh, I had wanted to come. By that time, I'm pretty jaded about the, about the denominational mm-hmm. thing. And so I had yes. wanted to come to Prescott uh, before, but uh, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't open it to me. And uh, uh, so they called me from there and said, uh, Prescott's open, are you interested? So the pastor had run off with the Sunday school superintendent. His uh, son had run off with the pianist, I think. And it was devastated. So and once so, again, they wait, waited until the thing was falling apart to yeah, give it to and, you. And desperate to get anybody to come in here. Do you feel now that it was God's plan all along to, to hone you for his I'd say so, ministry? Yeah. Yeah. For all these broken yeah. places with all these broken people? Yes, yes. And um, how did the four square leaders at that time help you with the financial burden of, of moving? No, these? never. You moved on your own. We went to conventions. I had a veterans administration insurance policy, which you got a rebate on every year. We'd use that to go to confer, uh, convention. When I went to uh, Eugene, it was the, the Parsons was absolutely devastated, and uh, I got them to send me, I think, two hundred dollars to help get a sink in order and so on. But uh, when we came to Prescott, they helped me with uh, three months 
I think at a hundred dollars a month, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly, and that's it. But we moved on our own. There's nothing. And then typically, isn't that the way most denominations work? I'd say that it is. To uh, this day? I'd say most of them. That's so what we do is, is totally foreign. It Many is. of the principles that I practice mm-hmm. and put into these people, uh, some of the Lord dealt with me about and revealed to me, know, are because of what we experienced then. What you lived through. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting men equipment. We had right. no equipment. You know, I, I preached for years on a PA system. Hmm. There was no PA. You do. By the time Sunday's over, your you're croaking. Was, <laughs> what state, I mean, besides the, the congregation here in Prescott was pretty shot. There was how many people left after the... Uh, there's 29 people, including my oh. family of seven in the first service. And what impact did the dedication of Bob and Sharon Allen have on your life? Well, major help. Bob and Sharon uh, and the Copelands mm-hmm. were the two families that were left. Then we had uh, an older couple. We had the Baileys, the Victoria Johnson today, Baileys. Uh, the, the, those families were all there, but they were not that solid. I mean, they're not, but, but Bob and Sharon Allen and the Copelands were solid people. And uh, I had told my wife, I said, if these people will stay in the church, we'll take it because you got the building, you got you got mm-hmm. to start. And so uh, I stopped in Prescott Valley where they worked at a restaurant out there, the old A-frame uh, Prescott Valley Motel there. And uh, and I uh, think I think it was Sharon was working there. Could have been Barbara Copeland, I can't remember. And so we sat down and said, we're here to look at the church. And uh, would you, are you folk going to stay in the church and leave the church? And they said, well, if we got a good pastor, why well, we'd probably stay. And so I said, well, we're, we're thinking seriously about doing it. And uh, we drove in, then came over the hill. And I just felt like this is what we need to do. But by that time, I'm totally jaded with church programs, the organization. But uh, to be honest with you, I said, uh, we got a house to live in. We can raise our family. I can preach. And so we'll just uh, we'll make it go somehow. And so Sharon says that the very first paycheck she wrote to you as pastor was made out to Raymond Mitchell. Yeah. And she says she thought you had a speech impediment when you said Wayman. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. And then soon after you got here, the Jesus People movement began sweeping yes. across the country. Yeah, it was already moving before we got here, but we didn't we didn't recognize her not because you you have to understand that in the church world then young people in church practically didn't exist. Mm-hmm. As soon as they hit the teen years, they're gone. Yeah. And so you started seeing the young rock and rollers get miraculously saved and set free from drugs. You went over to California and saw yeah, the we, happening. Yeah. And when many churches would run them off. Yeah. Why did you react differently? Uh, I just felt the impulse that uh, here's uh, and I saw. And you have to understand, it wasn't that large. We went into a little building in, uh, in California. I can't remember the name of the city now, but... Uh, La Habra. We went into a little uh, storefront building, and uh, it wouldn't have held over 75 young people, if that many. But they, they were sitting on the floor, they're everywhere, and they were outside milling. And this is a little rinky-dink uh, musical thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I'd never seen young people in a church. And you have to understand, young people didn't go to church in those mm-hmm. days. And so I saw that, and when I saw that, uh, I leaned over to, uh, to uh, Ron Jones, who was with me, and Ron Burl, I'd taken them over. We're, we're, 
we were on the courthouse plaza, the 4th of July, in a taco booth, which we were doing then. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we'd heard about what's happening in California. And I said, let's go over and see what's there. So I took them over on a weekend. And I leaned over to them and I said, this is working, Preston. And uh, so we assume that uh, we asked if we had talked to the guy. The guy's Don Madison is running that. said, would you come to, to Arizona and do the concert for us? And we, we'd like to break in. They said, yeah, I'll do that. So we made an appointment with him. We rented the boys, the old boys club, which is the old junior high school. Okay. I had been the junior high school. Mm-hmm. It was just a, it was rented out to people then. And when he got here, we're thinking he's going to bring the band, the equipment. When he gets here, he's got two hippies with acoustic guitars. So we rush out and rent a PA system. They were the stereos that you put in your home uh, stereo system and a, and a PA head and two microphones. And we put this thing on. Uh, and then Eden also, Ron Burrow and Stephen Rowe, they, they had visited the church off and on some, but we got them to come and play also. But it was a rinky-dink program. Mm-hmm. But to our astonishment, there's 200 young people came into that, that gymnasium there in the old uh, boys club. Uh, we're off and running. I see mm-hmm. this. This is this is a this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. All of a sudden, you became in love with rock and roll. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so then, from that, we went and rented the old building on Granite Street, where the Freeman Eye is right there in that uh-huh. building, uh, about okay. thirty-five feet uh, long and maybe twenty feet wide, and that was the, called it the door. Okay. And that, it cranked it up, and that's where it all started right there. When did you change the name, the church name, to the Potter's House? And how did you choose that name? We changed it uh, actually when we went uh, independent from the uh, Four Square in 1985. Uh, I'd been uh, had been to Australia uh, and had come back, and uh, the Potter's House was the name of our church that we that we had in Australia, and so we changed it when we uh, came out of Four Square. Mm-hmm. How did the Four Square denomination react to that? Well, at first they were elated with it. Uh, because it was happening. And uh, at that time, uh, Jack Hayford was just barely breaking into that in a little church out in Van Nuys. He actually got a split from a Jesus People's group of 200 young people. That's where he got his break on that and put him on the map. So over here, we're in uh, hidden away in no man's land, but they can't ignore us. I mean, this thing's happening. Jack was part of the four square. Oh, yeah, and, I, and so was I. And so uh, they can't ignore it. There's hundreds of young people that are coming through getting saved, and our church is growing. And uh, and so they think this is great. This is fantastic from a Jesus People's group of 200 young people. That's where he got his break on that and put him on the map. So over here, we're in uh, hidden away in no, no man's land, but they can't ignore us. I mean, this thing's happening. Jack was part of the four square. Oh, yeah, and, I, and so was I. And so uh, they can't ignore it. There's hundreds of young people that are coming through getting saved, and our church is growing. And uh, and so they think this is great. This is fantastic. Right. It was when we started planting churches, we ran into problems. At okay. first, it was a tremendous thing because we put Harold uh, in uh, Tucson, an old right. building. Uh, we pioneered a church in Wickenburg, mm-hmm. uh, Ron Burrell. Uh, it was seven months. It was uh, self-supporting. Uh, we put a uh, we put a a worker in uh, the old they called the Northeast Church in uh, in Twenty Eighth Street in Phoenix. 
Oh. Uh, Joe Camel went in there okay. and took a church. So these old churches, they couldn't get pastors to come into them. Nobody would come into them. But we're, you know, we're so that was great. Yeah, but this was out of the Prescott Church's pocketbook. Oh, yeah. Book. Oh, yeah. You oh, didn't yeah. go to the Foursquare people to get the money to Never do any, any of money. it. No. no, we financing all of this. And so uh, then when we started getting some momentum and we started planting churches then in New Mexico mm-hmm. and into Mexico, into Germany, and wow. uh, we tried to work with them, but we and send the money to the organization. They said it would take a month and a half for the money to get there. So we for saw, your missionaries, what you sent out, the money you sent for the people went had to go through had to go their to headquarters in and out. So you know they're bogged yeah. down with yeah. administration, mm-hmm. and so we saw well, that won't work. Yeah. So then we started bypassing. It's like them. big government. Yes, we started bypassing them. They could call us on the phone. We could send it the next day or the mm-hmm. same day. Right. And so that started causing major stress. Plus, uh, we would go to the uh, conferences, uh, like they have district conferences. Right. And here's these young couples. They're overwhelming this thing. And uh, all is there, senior citizens. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're 10 years from their grave. And uh, they're filled with and, and And so, so it's putting them, it's intimidating them. Oh. And uh, so, if, you know, our idea is we're going to revive the organization. Right. This is wonderful. But what we don't understand is happening is this groundswell of uh, resentment. And uh, when we went to Glorieta, New Mexico in 1983, my wife and I, because I was the, uh, I was a division superintendent, you have a meeting first with all these and with the international board to buy laws. They buy you a dinner and, you know, talk about things. And so uh, the first speaker said, I want to, I want to make a motion. Uh, I want to make a motion that we throw the Arizona Fellowship out of the Foursquare. They caused us a major problem. So we're, you know, we're sitting there. Yeah. So here's, here's 300 people in this room. And for two and a half hours, they thrash us over. And so I saw there, we're not going to re it's, it's all it's over. It's done. So out of that, I went to and called Harold Warner on the phone. I said, Harold, uh, they're going to accept us. Not going to happen. And uh, mm-hmm. then, then what I tried to do, I said, let all of our guys be independent. I've been four square for twenty five years. I'll just, I'll just stay in plant church. I know that they won't remove me because I know how they operate. Uh, and so I'll just stay four square. We keep planting independent churches. That's what we'll do. But uh, uh, God just dealt with me, and uh, I felt like I'd been molested. Mm-hmm. And not until I said, no, I'm going out. I don't care what it costs. As soon as I did that, I had to release my spirit. That uh, it's, got, it's got to be separated from that. And so that's when we started our course in 1985. And so then at that time, you basically what you did was rebought everything back from the organization that we you'd bought, already built. We bought back the building uh, and uh, the airplane and all the equipment, $520,000. To say the least, a lesser man would have thrown the towel in long ago when uh, the forces you had to withstand came against him. What did you do to gain victory when local governments tried to stop the gospel from being presented outside the church walls? Well, we've uh, we've had some court cases like against the school. We won a case against the school. We tried to stop our kids from passing tracts and witnessing. At Prescott High School, we won that case. We won some $68,000 for lawyers' fees back. We uh, took them to court. They tried to stop us from using the property where the church is now for for conferences and a tent. 
we had to take that to Phoenix. It cost us $22,000. Uh, is that the one that um, you won at the Superior Court yeah, level? in Phoenix, yeah. And they got a ruling that said you can't stop them from having church. If they're making noise or dusty or whatever, or danger, you can stop it. You can't stop them from doing that. Uh, we uh, had a public meeting. They tried to stop us from using the plaza. Uh, had a big meeting in, uh, in Hendricks Auditorium. And various times we've had, to, we had young people arrested on the plaza. Uh, they, the teenagers, they let go, but they prosecuted a black girl from Phoenix and we defended her. It cost us $17,000. So uh, basically, you know, I, you, you, you're looking at me like this super fight, but it, uh, I don't see myself that way at all, but just standing in for what's right mm -hmm. and, uh, having the, uh, determination, you're not going to run over us that uh, we have rights in America. Right. Thank God. You've witnessed firsthand God's mighty power to heal bodies, change lives, and turn total skeptics into passionate believers in Jesus Christ. Yet you yourself have been betrayed, disappointed, and personally attacked by the very ones you were instrumental in helping save and support in the ministry. How have you been able to withstand so much personal anguish over the years and still keep going like you do? Well, it's a, you have to decide that you, uh, you're going to do what God called you to do. And uh, this is nothing new in Acts 20, what Paul warned them, said from among yourselves, uh, men are going to rise up, draw away disciples, and uh, grievous wolves will enter among you. So this is nothing new. Uh, you simply have to keep perspective. And I remember when in 1990, when uh, Ron Jones and the group split, uh, I had come to the conclusion that why should you, why should you do this and then be betrayed? And uh, and I'd even made this statement that it's a waste of time. They just uh, they take your money, they get uh, solvent, and they rip you off. Uh, and then God clearly spoke to me. He said, you do what I called you to do. I'll take care of that. And so that's been my approach since then. You do have to deal with problems as they arise, both individually and uh, with groups. But the main thing is that uh, is uh, obey God. And uh, to some degree, we're doing what the Bible uh, directs you to do, and it has worked, and it's been uh, wildly successful around the world, in spite of all the uh, betrayal, the assaults, the disappointments, discouragements. You keep one of the craziest travel schedules of anyone I know as you take the gospel to the world. How do you do it? Well, I guess there it is again. Uh, that it's a calling, and uh, God has given me strength, uh, and uh, probably directly due to all the people who are praying for me around the world. Uh, that, that's the only thing I could. I have no pain in my body. Uh, I have uh, uh, relatively uh, very good health. My eyesight and hearing is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> and Greg but says you eat all the wrong foods. I probably do, yeah. <laughs> But uh, it's it, and it's the excitement uh, mm -hmm. and the uh, the thrill of seeing God work uh, is is uh, rejuvenating. When I began to pray for the sick, something happened to me that seemed like uh, that I was rejuvenated in life. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it, but uh, it's actually seeing God use you mm -hmm. instantly. And it's not something you have to wait on. It's there. Mm -hmm. And the excitement and the thrill of doing that, the challenge, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where I've seen people that uh, 
that disintegrate at age 60. They mm-hmm. just kind of vegetate. Yeah. Uh, I can't even imagine uh, not getting up in the morning, facing the day, uh, uh, studying the Bible, preparing sermons, going places to preach. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing that substitutes for it. It's what you do. And it has <laughs> to be, uh, it has to be a supernatural dimension mm-hmm. that that rejuvenates you. That's the only explanation I have. Are there any words of advice or encouragement you'd like to express to people today? Well, uh, you need a purpose in life. That's a, I'm not unique in saying that. A purpose in life uh, is half of life. Uh, because once you have... A vision that people perish? Yes, that's exactly. Without a vision, people perish. So once you get the uh, purpose, which is uh, you're aiming toward, Mm -hmm. and then secondly, you can't do uh, anything uh, of eternity without God working in your personality, in your being. I have a disciplined prayer life. Mm -hmm. I I pray. I came in last night. Uh, I'm in bed at 11 o'clock from from, uh, San Diego. I'm up to prayer meeting this morning. And uh, I've I've uh, I've done that. I've come in like 3 a.m. Uh, in when I was overseas uh, of the flight from overseas, and I'm in prayer meeting the next morning. So there's a spiritual dimension that would join with uh, the physical uh, elements to uh, give you purpose, give you energy, give you help. And so I claim often uh, the energy of youth and old age. But I want to say, as you're finishing this off, Mm -hmm. that none of what I've done, I could have done without a wife that is willing to uh, back me, uh, encourage me, go with me. And uh, she's traveled all over the world, three times to Australia, and uh, sometimes in uh, very sparse circumstances. Most of our early ministry, we could have qualified for welfare in any city we ever pastored in. And she's, she's been a major help. Massive help. Regulation, uh, living on what we were making, mm-hmm. and uh, discipline, uh, financial manager, make she sewed uh, clothes for the kids, right. lived on whatever budget we had, and uh, she's just been a, a wonderful, wonderful woman. And and so what, what God has accomplished in our ministry, a large part of that has been because she's a normal wife. Mm -hmm. and has taken her place and fulfilled it.